So what, uh, Brandon? What are you doing here? What is what's the oh, this. Okay, point so of this? So we're gonna start now. Yeah. What are we? Okay. I, mean, I figure we already started. I, or, uh, All the good stuff always happens before the interview. I'm gonna make a stab at an intro. I want to call a band Wild Stab. Wild Stab. Yeah, that's a good name. It's, it's yeah. not bad, right? That should have been done. Right. You could do it. Well, if it's it's hard to do band names these days. Every single thing that's even vaguely obvious has pretty much been used. And then everything else sounds like you're trying too hard. Well, that's yes, exactly. But wild stab doesn't sound like you're trying too hard. Why, wild stab? It does sort of box you in a little bit in terms of what it could sound like. That's the other thing is that you you know you have to like I think one of the best or the funniest band name. And I don't, as far as I know, nobody has used this yet, but, uh, you know, I'll probably never do it, but it would be Crystal Balls. <laughs> Isn't that good? That's great because it, in so many ways, it's good, you know? It's amazing what pluralizing does. Okay, just I'm gonna say one, two, three, and then you clap. One, two, three. Hold on, wait, hold on, wait, wait. <laughs> one, two, three. There you go. Welcome to the well. I'm Brandon Edgens. And I'm Anson Mount. And I am in the Caskills at the moment, working on my cabin, while Anson, where are you? I'm in Mississippi eating breakfast. Yeah. Are you doing anything interesting in Mississippi besides eating breakfast i'm working on a movie called midnight uh climax which is um it's loosely based on the uh cia drug experience experiments in the 1960s which we found out about with the freedom of information act and uh where are you what are you doing uh i am in the catskills working on the cabin uh so i'm um, have you seen the bear the bear no the bear the bear the bear near the property the bear oh, no. that kept coming around for the Reese's Pieces. No, no, I haven't seen that bear in a while. He gave up. After I chased him through the woods with a uh, machete and a bottle of whiskey, I think he decided we were crazy and gave up. <laughs> Turning back to the matter at hand, would you explain to the listener the concept behind these bonus episodes? Yeah, so we figured that every now and then we're going to have... Uh, extra material that's that's good and interesting and a great piece of tape, but didn't quite fit into the overall episode itself, but we still want to give it to you. So we figured we'd be releasing bonus content every now and then uh, so that you could hear that extra tape that, that, that we're pretty proud of. And uh, we, we have some of that this week. This episode will feature bits from our conversation with last week's subject, Jonathan Myberg the lead singer and songwriter of Shearwater. What I love about talking to Jonathan is the way his curiosity latches onto the nearest thing and becomes a point of departure for like, in this case, an extended rumination on evolution and genetic memory. We were at his place in Brooklyn talking about his book about birds in South America when a blue jay caught his attention. And in that instant, 
mind that's similar to ours. Jonathan's attention and imagination really went literally out the window. Wacky travel stories in it, but it's not, um, it's not cutesy, I hope. Uh, one of the Blue Jays that I've been feeding is just zoomed by the window. I put these little walnuts out there, and sometimes the Blue Jays get them, and sometimes it's the squirrels. <laughs> but the Blue Jays like to hide them in the planter out there on the, uh, on the railing, and uh, sometimes uh, the squirrels figure that out too. So the Blue Jays will pick up a walnut, put it in the planter, and then a squirrel will come by and dig it out of the planter and take it off. And it's same uh, same as it ever was. Yeah, exactly. But what you know, I love like watching like because a Blue Jay is like a dinosaur, right? And then the, the uh, squirrel is a mammal, and so you know the dinosaurs and the mammals are still duking it out on my on the fire escape. The more things change. Yeah, exactly. The more they stay the same. But uh, only the sizes have changed. And even then, not necessarily. Well, yeah, not necessarily. Like, I mean, some birds actually, once the. I'm just writing about this in the book, but, um, you know, birds are dinosaurs that lived through the Cretaceous extinctions. The dinosaurs did not die. Um, And the only reason we think of them as different from dinosaurs is because scientists were so, you know, uh, resolutely wrong about them for more than a century that they were something else. And. some of them even uh, got very big again. I mean, there was a there was a sort of megapode or a sort of fowl-like vegetarian animal in in uh, Australia, bird uh, that got to be like ten feet tall and weighed more than a thousand pounds. And there were uh, these things that called terror birds uh, that lived in South America, got up into North America, and uh, I think there've been some found in Europe also, but they were. You know, they were like, imagine something the size of an ostrich with a great, big, huge predatory bill that could just, like, run you down and kill you. And those lived up into, like, almost historical time. Like, really? human beings probably met them. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my God. And it's like, the difference between that and, like, a velociraptor is really small. The last ones that they found were, like, you know, twelve or 13,000 years old. That's, that's recent enough to persist in human memory, I think, and story, I mean, in legend, so to speak. There is a one giant bird that lives in in legendary memory, um, mm. for pretty much for sure, and it's in New Zealand. When the Maori turned up in New Zealand, which is somewhere I think between like 800 and 1,000 years ago, not very long, they found a this sort of little mini continent essentially that was populated. All the vertebrates in it were birds, pretty much. They had three species of bats, but everything else was birds. There were no mammals, really, in New Zealand. And so birds had expanded into all these niches that mammals live in in other places. There were birds that were kind of like badgers. There were birds that were um, like, you know, antelopes. There were birds that were just absolutely bananas. And the Maori ate the shit out of them. And, and there were birds know, that were like, and there were birds that were like bananas. Yeah, and exactly. They, the, but there was a, uh, there was a giant... You know, there were these birds called they call moa. Um, although moa is a word in, in that just means chicken in other parts of Polynesia. <laughs> so it sort of tells you the value that they had. Uh, but the, uh, they were very tasty, apparently. People ate them a lot. And they were not afraid of people at first. So you could just walk up to them and, and knock them on the head. Um, but it'd be intimidating to walk up to a 12-foot-tall bird and knock it on the head. Because that's about how big they were. And Twelve. They were huge. And there was an eagle that ate them. Harpagornis morii, it's called, it was the host eagle. It was like more than a third larger than the largest living eagle, which is the harpy eagle in South America. So it weighed like 30 pounds. And it hit its prey with, somebody estimated the force of like an, a cinder block thrown off an eight-story building. 
and had claws like a polar bear. You know, it was like a flying tiger, basically. And but it's how big you had to be to be able to prey on these kinds of things. And uh, they, the moa went extinct around 1400, and the and this this eagle followed them uh, into extinction. Mm-hmm. And uh, but there's a legendary giant bird that eats people in in some Maori lore that's uh, called the puakai. And so that's that's the only example of that I can think of. Where do we get the idea for monsters and these things oh, if we yeah. didn't if isn't something that your great 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 grandfather talked about? <laughs> well, I think that's a lot of why why hyenas are just so hideous looking to us. I think hyenas, when you look at them, they really do look like an archetypal monster. Mm-hmm. And we had to deal with um, certainly in Europe, these these very large hyenas that that were a real predator of people, and that um, the cave hyenas and stuff that were very frightening. They lived in the dark and they hunted you, and so you can see why you'd become very keyed in to the appearance of that particular animal. And I think a lot of what we see in, in depictions of monsters are actually features lifted from hyenas. Big dark eyes. Um, Probably because they're active at night, you know, they have yeah. really good night vision. And the, um, uh, they just, there's something, there's, they're toothy, but they're not just toothy, there's just something about them that seems like uniquely horrifying. extinction a long time ago in Europe, just in Europe. But the, but the idea that there was this wild, very powerful, smart thing out in the uh, out in the woods that would come that would snatch you, you and you know, hunt yeah. you down and that kind of thing. That that actually had become that didn't happen anymore. They those the bad wolves, the yeah. big bad wolves. Yeah, the good yeah the big bad wolves. <laughs> the good the good wolves became our allies, yeah. and then the big bad wolves. The big bad wolves were, but they'd been eradicated, and they became legends, and they became uh, monsters. And it was one of those things that made Europeans, when they came over here, freak out a little bit, because suddenly they were back. And yeah, those things, like this, this ancestral memory. Yeah, right. I, I, I hadn't thought about what a wow, what a freaky thing that would have been to have been like no, I thought these were just stories. This is that ancient monster that yeah. we heard about. And you can hear him out there making that noise. Well, and then, you know, but, but also, I mean, the Native Americans also had domesticated them. And I didn't really think about this one bit until one day I was walking down the street here and I saw a wolf tethered to a parking meter in front of a grocery store. <laughs> And especially, you can get more domesticated than tethered to a parking. Mat. I was just like, I, I, my, I, my. It was so interesting because I've never seen a wild wolf, uh-huh. but everything in my brain just went off and went wolf. Mm-hmm. That's what that is. What is that doing here? And it looks happy enough just sitting yeah. there. So I thought, well, I think this probably belongs to somebody who just walked into that grocery store. So I'm going to wait and see who on earth has a wolf that they're walking around New York. And I stood there, and as I stood there for a few minutes. All these other people kept passing by the thing. And as people kept passing by, I kept hearing people say, Oh, wolf, wolf, wolf. Oh my God, yeah. it's a wolf. It's a wolf. And I was like, none of these people have seen a wolf. Right. And yet, there's like this like <laughs> I think this little circuit that just like activates. It goes, danger. 
and you know. and and yet children who have never seen them have nightmares about them. Yeah, yeah. And that brings up a whole uh, notion of genetic memory that we were at least you know I remember being told that there was that was absolutely impossible. Yeah, there's no way right? you can't store an, an image can't be transferred like that. I'm thinking like if if a baby can recognize faces instantly, there's some. Yeah, we're not, nobody. The, the, there's no such thing as a tabula rasa. No. I mean, like it just—we're not a blank slate. Yeah, like, think how much work you'd have to do if you you, you hatched out of the egg right. as a blank slate. <laughs> you know? no, I'm pretty sure I did. <laughs> well, I'll tell you that. Well, here's an here's an interesting example of of that from a different perspective. Um, in the Falklands, which I've spent a bunch of time in the Falklands, looking at birds and other wildlife. Uh, the birds in the Falklands are especially remarkable in that, like a lot of isolated island fauna, they they don't have any fear of people. Um, they just kind of look at you. You can walk right up to penguins unless you get really close to them or move too fast. They'll just if you stand still, it's like you just disappear. And the caracaras, these birds of prey that I've been studying down there, um, will actually they're interested in you. They'll come up to you and see what's in your bag, and I mean they're just they're absolutely fearless. But there's one animal that is scared to death of people down there, and it's seals. Especially yeah. sea lions and fur seals. Because people hunted them like crazy in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And uh, actually, from the early 19th century up to the, to the early 20th century. And when a fur seal sees you, if you come, uh, see a group of fur seals sort of in the distance over some rocks, the instant one of them sees you, it's, they just cannot wait to get in the ocean. They throw themselves off of cliffs. I mean, they're just like this absolute frenzy of fear. And if you come across a sleeping sea lion, like in the grass, as you do sometimes, you know, the, they'll wake up and see you and just go, and like, you know, and like just flee. And of course, they're, they're cute. They're just really scary looking, but they're scared of you because to them, you are a, the boogeyman come to life. The, you're a dim ancestral nightmare that has suddenly appeared in the flesh in front of them and they just run like the devil for the water. Where, by the way, there are real things that will eat them. Killer whales, you know. <laughs> they would much rather be in the water with the stuff that can actually eat them than on land with you. Even though you want to go, the danger is past. Yeah, you can trust me. <laughs> I am no longer opposed to your species. I'm not an enemy anymore. I'm not uh, going to take your fur. Come closer. Pow, no, yeah, but you know, all the, all the, the trusting ones uh, got, uh, got murdered. <laughs> so, you, you know, you see, you, you know, you go to this environment. It's just like you can't. This is an animal that is scared to death of us. Um, contrasted with all these animal, other animals that are not. Because, like, the penguins just sit there watching this happen. You know, even, there was a brief penguin oil uh, uh, industry where people were just clubbing them to death and boiling them up in pots and stuff, but it didn't last very long, and it was uh, it was superseded by um, petroleum. So in a way, oil kind of saved um, the whales and certainly the penguins. And part of the reason that the southern uh, ocean wildlife didn't die out like the northern ocean stuff did. Even though the, the genetic memory thing, uh, being human, I guess, I immediately assumed, like, well, that's a thing that we can do. But I never. No, you know, no. But I mean, like, I mean, why, why are cats afraid of cucumbers? Why does like any, <laughs> you know, why does anything that's longer than it is wide freak every animal out? I mean, Anson almost got his neck broken up in the uh, on the show because somebody there was a fire stunt. He was on his horse, and someone yeah. ran in front of the horse with a hose. Oh yeah, no good. Yeah, so it's true. Uh, so 
<laughs> we were shooting on set and we had a bonfire going uh, and I was on my horse, which at the time uh, was Badger. And uh, they didn't tell us that they were going to be putting out the bonfire between every take and I'm, I'm on Badger. And suddenly one of our effects crew goes running in front of us pulling a really long fire hose, which to Badger... Uh, <laughs> Badger saw a snake, and I don't know if you've ever seen those Warner Brothers cartoons where the the horse's eyes bug out of his head and 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 the smoke comes out of his nostrils. Well, that's what happened. <laughs> that's what happened to Badger, who was normally a very lazy horse, but not at this moment. <laughs> and for he was motivated. Unfortunately, I had a few seasons behind me, so I knew how to keep him from bol- from bolting. Uh, but it could have been a bad situation, and uh, and uh, they heard a few uh, expletives from me that here's day. The, but here's here's my um, question: Badger, uh, where was Badger trained, raised? Exactly, exactly. So it's very important to note that that we were shooting and are based, and our Wranglers are based with our our horse herd in Alberta, and there there is there are no snakes. In that part of Canada, it's too far north. There are no snakes, none, zilch. So there was never an opportunity for Badger's mother to teach him, uh, watch out for that. That's dangerous. Um, And I don't think Badger's mother was smart enough to use a fire hose as a surrogate (laughs) teaching tool. (laughs) So, yeah, that's a pretty good example of, of genetic memory. It's weird stuff. It's not instinct. It's something different. I found it... Very interesting when you found out that black bears actually sleep in trees, and there's 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 no other reason for this than for defense, which assumes that at some point there was something in the North American forest that was larger and hunting black bears. And it's funny because the times have changed in the past ten thousand years, but that's not long enough for something like genetic memory to really change that much. So you can add to it. But whatever sort of bad memories they had of being hunted on the ground are still there. So they're still hiding from something that doesn't exist anymore. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. The, I always figured it was just us, but, but the one, there could have been bigger bears, which might have killed them every once in a while. I mean, and there certainly were bigger bears. There were short-faced bears. Um, I can imagine wolves going for them sometimes. Also, there were jaguars in North America. Um, some of which were, I think, pretty much indistinguishable from the jaguars that now live in Central and South America. Uh, but there were also giant jaguars that lived here. They called them American lion for a long time, but it looks like their affinities are more with jaguars. But they're still panthera, I guess. I mean, they're still the big cat genus. That particular group we can, we can get a lot more recent on because they're in the La Brea Tar Pits, which I think the oldest stuff out of those is like 34,000, 36,000 years ago or something. They're not that old. And so, um, and there's tons of them in there. So, I mean, the humans overlapping with these megafauna, I mean, that definitely... We saw them. Yeah, yeah we saw a lot of them. And wow. the, the big debate, of course, which we shouldn't get into here on this podcast about artistic inspiration is over um, wh- how much of a hand our species had in killing them off. Um, because there's, th- that's been a big argument for a long time, sometimes for, you know, political reasons. Um, but in Australia, it's been a big bone of contention. And I think right now the weight of evidence is more on people wiping out the megafauna in Australia because there were giant kangaroos and there was that giant bird I t- just told you about and the, um, 
And there were giant all kinds of things that all kind of just disappear as soon as we people We tend out. to be pretty lethal to everything when we show up. Yeah, we are. It's, I think there's an element of it where there's, uh, uh, there's people who say like, well, just because you feel guilty for being a human being... Um, doesn't mean that we killed off all the animals in the Pleistocene, <laughs> you know. Like that's, and there, and there is an element of it to that because I mean I I tend to, it's very tempting to think oh God there goes the neighborhood anytime people turn up anywhere, and it's hard not to draw that conclusion when you go to places where people are not or have not been or have not been for a long time or are very minimal in their influence on that place. Places where the, the the animals, plants, everything that lives there is where our presence is not a day-to-day factor. Um, it has a really different feeling about it than any place where that's not the case. Uh, I mean, I went and as part of the research for the book, I went to this um, part of Guyana, southern Guyana. And went ascended this remote river, and uh, above some waterfalls on the river, the animals just did not care that we were there. Um, I saw a puma just like lying on a bank, just looking at us. I mean, that's the I've never seen one of those before. And and this one just sort of it got up and went away, but in a very leisurely fashion. <laughs> The Well is recorded, edited, and produced by Anson Mount and myself, Brandon Edgens. This week's music is by myself, Brandon Edgens, based on themes by Jonathan Myberg. On Anson's suggestion, we give Jonathan a break. Good luck to Jonathan, by the way, as he enters the home stretch of completing his book for Knopf, working title, The Feathered People. You can learn more about Shearwater by going to their website, shearwatermusic.com, or our website, thewellpod.com. Thank you to all the subscribers and reviewers. We really appreciate it. If you haven't done so, please give us a review and tell us what you think. And before we go, here's Jonathan, one last time, giving his thoughts on prehistoric sloths. Have a great week. The ground sloths were all vegetarians. They have great big claws. Um, But uh, that, I think, was sort of a defense thing for them and also helped them in digging. I mean, the the sloths are part of this group that came up from South America, the Xenarthrans, which it's sloths, armadillos, and anteaters are all all share a common ancestor. That was probably an underground animal, by the way, because they all have really shitty eyesight and they all have these big digging claws. (laughs) And and, uh, they... uh, so it's sort of it seems likely that whatever their ancestor was, it might have lived kind of underground or at least partly underground. Which is funny when you think about sloths, so you now identify them yeah. with trees. But uh, but the ground sloths, of course, didn't live in trees, which that confused people for a little while because when Darwin was bringing some you know, bones of these things back to, to Europe, they were looking and go like. What I mean, these ground sloths were massive. They were like some of them were the size of elephants. And people were thinking, what kind of tree could have supported this thing? <laughs> you know? <laughs>
You know, it just would have imagine, yeah, an elephant hanging up in a tree. Yeah, it was, like, that was sort of the problem you were faced with until they, you know, like, wait, no, that's not what was, was going on. They they just had these, you know, massive musculature. I mean, they had a huge gut, of course, that you had to have to process all this vegetable mm-hmm. stuff that they ate. Um, but also, um, just like you can look at their pelvis and their leg bones, and they're just burly as hell because they had to have so much muscle on there to lift themselves. And partly they had to lift themselves up on those legs to reach stuff in the tops of trees and such, kind of like, you know, like giraffes do. And so they kind of spent some time in this sort of bipedal pose, which sort of like when you've seen a bear standing on its hind legs and, and it looks just weirdly like a person wearing a bear suit. These sloths like might have even walked around like that sometimes. There might have been these sort of like bipedal giant sloths walking around in wow. South America and even North America for a little while. 